The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. The scripture today is from Mark 8, 17 through 21. Aware of this, he said to them, Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Don't you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes that not see? Do you have ears and not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, Don't you understand yet? This is the word of the Lord. Maybe see that. So what frustrates you? If you were to make a list of your top three frustrations, what would be on the list? We all have things that frustrate us. Some of us probably have more things that frustrate us than others, though I doubt any of us have as many, have as many things on our list as Uncle Don would have on his list of things that frustrates him. So if you've been at Redeemer for any length of time and heard Don preach, usually most sermons start with him telling us different things that frustrate him. In fact, not too long ago when one of my sons heard that Don was preaching, he sort of got this gleeful look in his eye and said, I wonder what group of people he's going to make fun of at the start of the sermon. <laughs> so if you've been here, you're like, you know, it could be people who hike. It could be people who don't hike. It could be people who drive too fast, people who drive too slow, people who jog. I mean, pretty much people who do anything potentially frustrate him. Listen, I can identify with some of those frustrations, particularly all the driving ones. Uh, that, that one's fairly universal. I think so often what frustrates me are things outside of my control that affect my ability to do what I'm trying to accomplish. So if I'm driving somewhere and I, I'm trying to get there on time, and I am always trying to get there on time, I don't like being late, and someone is driving slowly in front of me, and they're not aware of my desire to be there on time... And so they're prohibiting me in my mind from getting there on time. Like that's a cause of frustration for me. I'm frustrated because I can't control the outcome. Do you ever get frustrated about where you are spiritually? Like there's a certain response that you have a hard time controlling. Or there's a certain person and you know you need to be patient with them, but they just... They just rile you up. Or there's a certain temptation that seems so powerful and it's frustrating how often you fail. Or how you're struggling with the same things that you struggled with last week or last decade. In our community group this week, one member shared their frustration over struggling with the same sin for the past 40 years. And they said they were sure, when they were younger, they were sure that by now they'd have it figured out. Why does it seem like maturity takes so long? Why doesn't growth in Christ happen faster? We, we've talked about how the Gospel of Mark was one of the early New Testament books. It was the first gospel written. And so we've, we've thought a lot over the last few weeks about those first Christians who've heard the gospel, God and his grace has opened their hearts to believe their lives are being transformed by Jesus. They've made this commitment to follow Jesus. And in a lot of ways, they're trying to figure out what does it actually mean 
to follow Jesus? Like, what does this actually thing I've committed my life to? And so they've, they've heard some teaching on it. Maybe one of the apostles has actually come through or a, a New Testament prophet, but they have this partial revelation. And all of a sudden, along comes the gospel of Mark, right? Hot off the presses. And now they're not only learning more about Jesus as they read this account, they're learning more about what this actually looks like to follow Jesus. What does this mean this, that I'm a follower of Jesus? So we saw in chapter 6 that it's not easy, but it's worth it. Right? That rejection is almost certain for a Christian and persecution is a real possibility, but knowing Jesus is worth any loss of earthly comfort or convenience. Chapter 7 taught us that it's not rules but faith. The key to the Christian life is trusting Jesus to transform our hearts, not counting on our own commitment to follow rules. Chapter 8 will show us that it's not instant but gradual. That maturity, it's, right, maturity has never been dropped off by FedEx at your door. There's no Amazon Prime for spiritual maturity. It just doesn't come in one day or two days. Like, we don't learn to resist temptation. We don't learn to walk in righteousness overnight or over one week or over one year. In fact, we could probably say over one lifetime. That God molds and he shapes us through time and experience. Now this was alluded to already in the gospel. Think back to chapter 4. There were all these parables. But the the main parable was this parable about a, a sower who sowed seed into the soil. And the seed is the word of God. And the soil is the human heart. And so Christian hearts are like good soil that have received the word of God. And it's started to take root. Do seeds produce fruit overnight? So, so just this week, I know that Eric tilled Beverly's garden. And so I asked Eric, where, the, where were the vegetables at community group this week? Now, I wouldn't eat them. I eat meat. But where are the vegetables? He tilled the garden this week. It was prior to, I think it was the day before community group. So where is all the produce from that tilling? Right? We know that. Eric didn't do anything wrong, that you don't get fruit immediately. It takes time. It takes patience until fruit comes. And so for every Christian who's struggling with the slowness of their spiritual growth, who's frustrated with failure and longing for greater maturity, this chapter, I think, provides us with incredible hope and encouragement. And for non-Christians, if you're not a Christian... I think maybe this chapter can help you better understand Christians, particularly why it is that as Christians, what we say we believe and how we act don't always match up. Now before we focus on this issue of spiritual maturity, I just want to give a very quick overview. There's seven different scenes in our passage this morning. And just so we know what's taking place and how to orient ourselves, let me just quickly run through what happens, then we'll jump in. So at the end of chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, Jesus heals a man who is deaf and mute. Following that, chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, Jesus does this miracle of feeding 4,000 people by multiplying fish and loaves. After that miracle, 11 through 13, some of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, come to Jesus demanding that he show proof that he's the Messiah. He refuses to do that, and verses 14 through 21, gets in a boat and has a conversation 
with his disciples about their lack of spiritual perception. They get out of the boat in verses 22 through 26, and Jesus heals a blind man. Verses 27 through 30, the disciples confess that Jesus is Lord, and then they show that they don't really understand what that means. And then finally, verses 34 through the first verse of chapter 9, Jesus explains more what it means to be his disciple. And together, these seven different scenes, they, they give us a realistic picture of the Christian life. A realistic picture of the Christian life. And, and through the, the example of the disciples here, we're going to see this truth, that this is where we find hope, that spiritual maturity takes time. Like it's this slow, incremental process like a seed growing into a tree. So let's start with the reality of immaturity. The reality of immaturity. The center of this passage is a conversation Jesus has with his disciples about their lack of spiritual perception. And this conversation follows a confrontation between the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the Pharisees who have come and they've, they've met Jesus. And here's what they've done. They've demanded that Jesus give them proof that he's the messianic king long prophesied. And it's, they keep doing this. They want him to demonstrate, verse 11 says, his power through more miraculous signs. They, they continue to say to Jesus, if you're the Messiah, prove it. Now this, this request is not born out of spiritual curiosity. It actually comes from very hardened hearts. Because Jesus has proved it. Right? Jesus has healed the sick. He's healed the lame. He's cast out demons. And every time he's done this, what have the religious leaders said? They said, well, the reason you're doing all these powerful things is because you're working for Satan. So when even Jesus would do a good thing, they'd be like, well, that's a trick. He's trying to deceive you. So Jesus has proved it, and they have resisted it. And so he says, no, I'm not going to do this. And so he and his disciples get in the boat, verses 12 through 13. They get in the boat, and the disciples have a crisis. And I... I get this crisis. Every parent who's ever gotten in a car with their kids understands this. They're in a vehicle and there's not enough food for hungry people. Like, right, that's a crisis. There's one loaf of bread amongst 12 people. I don't care how big that loaf is, that is insufficient to feed all of these men. Well, Jesus uses this opportunity for to give an object lesson about the danger of unbelief. He refers to the leaven of the Pharisees in verse 15. Now, leaven is yeast. It's what causes bread to, to, to rise. But in religious thought, it's often used as a symbol for sin. And this is why in just a little bit when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, you'll get some unleavened bread because that's a picture of Jesus who was sinless. And so the sin of the Pharisees he's warning them about, the sin which spreads like yeast through a loaf, is unbelief. We see that they don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and therefore this unbelief sort of affects everything they do, which the disciples would have just witnessed. Okay, but the disciples, they don't really care or get the object lesson because they're actually just concerned about the lack of bread, And so Jesus asked them some pointed questions. Look at verse 16. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Can't you just picture it? Jesus makes this wonderful object lesson, and they sort of look at each other. They say nod and say, yes, Jesus. And they turn around like, but what are we going to do? I mean, there's only one loaf of bread. Verse 17, aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? 
Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? So in spite of all that they've seen, in spite of all that they've heard, they don't get it. They struggle to comprehend what Jesus is doing, and they struggle, therefore, to believe. And, and we see that their concern over this loaf of bread is, it reveals a, a greater issue, this issue of spiritual maturity. And so I want you to see how their immaturity is revealed in three ways. And I think, if we're honest, maybe we can see it in our own hearts as well. So the first way is that they have a, an immature understanding of Jesus' compassion. So what led to this was this feeding of the 4,000 at the beginning of chapter 8. Now, you've, you've been with us or you've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, you get to chapter 8 and you read it and you're like, wait a sec, haven't, we've already seen this, right? Like this is very similar to something that happened in chapter 6. And both the stories are almost eerily similar. There's a crowd of people. They're hungry. There's nowhere for them to eat. Jesus has compassion on them. He says to his disciples, hey, we got to feed them. The disciples are like, ah, we have no ability to feed them. Jesus gets from the disciples just a small amount of food. Both times it's bread and fishes. He has the people sit down. He prays and he starts breaking the bread and fish into pieces and handing them out. And soon everyone has eaten their fill and there are leftovers. So very similar events. So similar, in fact, that some have speculated that Mark may have forgotten that he already wrote it and included a second time, or possibly someone who copied one of Mark's early, early copies. They, they, they sort of made a mistake and they added it a second time. That's not what's happening. This isn't, this isn't the same event, very similar for certain reasons, but also there are a couple key differences which help us understand why he includes this. And the key differences are the location and the leftovers. So in the first feeding, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, it takes place, the location is Israel, which means that most of the crowd, if not all of them, would have been Jewish people. And Jesus feeds them and there are 12 baskets of left. Uh, 12 baskets of leftovers, 12 baskets for 12 tribes, for 12 apostles, this sort of symbolic picture that Jesus is, is, is creating this brand new people under his leadership. But in this miracle, here in chapter 8, in the feeding of the 4,000, you have this take this takes place outside of Israel. It takes place in a Gentile area, which means the crowd would have been predominantly, if not almost exclusively, Gentile. And there are seven baskets of leftovers, a picture of completion or fullness. So the picture is Jesus creates a new humanity, and then he adds to that humanity the Gentiles until it's full, until it's complete. And so Jesus is performing this miracle to again teach that his compassion extends beyond Jewish people to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. If you remember the previous account that we looked at last week, a Gentile woman came to Jesus and Jesus repeated to her the type of statement that would have been common in Jewish religious thought that God was really only interested in the Jews, not the Gentiles. And Jesus, as we looked at last week, was repeating this, not because he was teaching this, but as a way of making a statement about this is what is often said. And he shows that that is not the truth because the very next thing he does is then heals this Gentile woman, right? And includes her as one of those children who receives from him the bread of life. 
See, Jesus invites Jew and Gentile alike to his feast. As he creates a new people of God from all nations, he demonstrates his care and compassion for them. The miracle here is a foretaste of the heavenly banquet where Jesus invites all to come and feast at his table. Okay, but the disciples, they, they struggle to get it. They, they struggle to understand the full depth of Jesus' compassion for his people. So in spite of seeing him feed 5,000 men, plus women and children, and then 4,000 people, the disciples worry that he won't feed them. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? There's one single loaf in the boat, and there's 13 of us. And this is what leads Jesus to ask him these questions. Look at verse 19. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you have? Twelve. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets of leftovers did you have? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? No, they don't. They don't get the compassion of Jesus. Neither do I. I mean, how many times have I seen Jesus care for people? How many times have I experienced the love and care of Jesus myself? How many times have I seen him work in me? How many have seen him work in other people? And yet, how often do I wonder, like, is he paying attention? Does he see what I'm going through? Like, so in the midst of struggle, in the midst of difficulty, how often do I go, like, does he care? In spite of all I've seen? I mean, how many times do I come in on a Sunday and we, we together with our family, we feast on the Word of God and we come to the table, which is a picture of where we eat and we drink this as a way of saying like, Jesus died in my place so I can be accepted before the Father and I'm going to be invited into his, I'm invited to his family where we will feast forever. Like Jesus died in my place and then I leave and on Monday through Saturday I go, is he paying attention? Does he care? Does he not notice what I'm going through? I mean, how, how am I not just like a disciple sitting in a boat after the feeding of the 5,000 saying like, well, but what about now? We only have a loaf of bread. The disciples had an immature understanding of Jesus' compassion, but so do we, don't we? I read a statement a couple years ago in the book Gentle and Lowly that struck me then and has just stuck with me ever since, and it's this, that the Christian life is a lifelong shedding of tepid thoughts of God's goodness. Like I have tepid, immature thoughts about God's goodness. I do. I wonder, what, what about now? What will you do now? I know what you did before, but are you going to leave me here to starve? Like it's frustrating how quick I am, just like those first disciples, to wonder, does he care enough to provide for me? They also have an immature understanding of Jesus' purpose. So after the parting from the boat, Jesus heals a man born blind. Then he and his disciples are walking down the road, verse 27, and he asks the disciples, like, who do people think that I am? And the answers in verse 28 are, they think you're either John the Baptist brought back to life, or maybe Elijah brought back to life, or maybe just one of those other Old Testament prophets brought back to life. Interesting that all of them have resurrection involved. Maybe John again is, 
or Mark is again causing us to look ahead. So Jesus then asks, look at verse 29, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. So here's where it looks like the disciples, they finally got it. They have successfully identified Jesus as the messianic king who has come to set God's free people free. But then it quickly becomes apparent they have no idea what the Messiah actually came to do. That they're understanding the Messiah, which is what would have been driven by the popular teaching of the time, is that the Messiah was this political king who was going to expel the Romans and he's going to set up a Jewish kingdom that will rival, maybe even surpass, the glory days under King David. See, their picture of the Messiah only includes certain promises from the Old Testament. I've reached the point in my life where I'm old enough now to watch Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy once in a while. I think, I think you just reach a stage in life where that becomes, you know, nightly viewing. It's not nightly yet. I'm not there, but it happens more often than I'd like to admit. And so sometimes you're watching Wheel of Fortune. You young people, you'll understand someday. Sometimes you're watching Wheel of Fortune and like the, you got all the blanks up there and they pick a, put a couple letters up. Vanek pushes a couple letters and you start guessing and sometimes maybe your guess is good, but most of the time you get a, a couple T's and S's and you start guessing and you're way off. And it isn't until more of the letters are filled in and sometimes almost all of the letters before you're like, okay, now I get it. And, and what happened is as, as the religious leaders taught from the Old Testament, it, it was like they only pulled out a few of the letters and then just guessed at the rest. Sort of ignored the rest. So they, they pulled out all these passages that were passages of victory, which are in there, certainly, and passages of prosperity and passages of great joy and all of these things, and they, they ignored sort of all the other parts that talked about before glory is suffering. And so Jesus, in verse 31, it says that he began to teach his disciples how the Messiah must suffer die, and rise again. Now this doesn't square with the, the sort of the typical understanding. It certainly doesn't square with Peter's understanding of what the Messiah is supposed to do. And so Peter walks over and he pulls Jesus to the side and he rebukes him. Like, no, Jesus, this is not what the Messiah is going to do. And look what happens next, verse 33. Turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Peter wants the Messiah to rule without first suffering. Do you realize this is the very same thing that Satan offered Jesus in the final temptation? He said to Jesus, All that the Father has promised you can be yours if you'll simply worship me. In other words, Jesus, you don't have to go through the cross to receive the kingdom. I'll just give it to you. But that was not the Father's will. And so in Peter's rebuke, Jesus hears the familiar hissing of the serpent. Everybody knows the road to glory travels through the cross. And only by traveling that way can Jesus conquer sin and death. Only by going to the cross, suffering in the place of sinners rising from the dead, is he able to liberate his people and restore his world. So I I, I want you to do something now. I want you to picture a young Christian who has got the gospel of Mark for the first time. I mean, it, it, it is, it's there. It's the first time in his hands. And 
he's living in Rome and he's thinking about how he once heard Peter preach. And, and when he heard Peter preach, Peter was this sort of wizened old sage who just sort of dripped sort of godliness and holiness and compassion. And, and this was before Peter was martyred. And he, he thinks back to that time and he just he thinks about how when he saw and heard Peter, it was both encouraging and maybe slightly discouraging. It was encouraging because there was just something absolutely compelling about Peter. Just him, he, the aroma of Jesus was on him. Like this deep love for Jesus, his commitment that will ultimately lead him to death on the cross. But it's slightly discouraging because that young Christian is saying like, I mean, look at me. Like, I mean, Peter's got such a great and intense love for Jesus. And my, I know my own commitment is weak and wimpy. Then he opens Mark's gospel. And he, realize, and he reads this account. And he realizes for the first time that wizened, mature, aged Peter was not always so wise or mature. And that even in Peter's life, Right, that it took in numerous years and innumerable struggles for Peter to mature. Like struggling with God's purpose is natural because it's hard for us to trust that God has it all in control when it seems like it's spiraling out of control. It's hard for us to understand that God's way is best when it seems like another way would work better. So we see these first disciples. They not only struggle with Jesus' compassion, but also his purpose. Third, they have an immature understanding of Jesus' values. So Jesus moves directly from the challenges he will face to the challenges the disciples will face as they attempt to follow him. And so in these very familiar verses, he sets up this contrast between the natural way of viewing life and God's way. We, we all begin with this natural way of viewing life and the way it should work. And only as we follow Jesus does our understanding of the world start to change and our view of what is valuable begins to change. Look at this in verse, starting verse 34. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. So Jesus is laying out two contrasting set of values. He says, if you value him, then you will deny yourself, take up your cross, and lose your life. But in doing so, you'll actually gain your life. He says, but the other way is that you, you don't value him, and you try to save your life, and you end up trying to gain the whole world, but at the end of the day, you lose your life. And so what he's saying is that the way to follow me is countercultural. Like what seems to be the way of death, death to your will, death to your plans, 
death to your reputation, even death is actually the way of life. And the way that seems to be of life, right, that maintaining your reputation, saving your own life, gaining everything you think you want, that's actually the way of death. Okay, let's, let's think about this natural way of seeing the world, the way that Jesus calls trying to save your life, but actually costs it. Uh, how, how are people trying to save their lives? Okay, now I think maybe we can get a little closer to the answer if we ask this question. What would it look like for you to gain the whole world? What's the one thing in the world you think you need? What means everything to you? Students, what makes life worth living? Like, what's the thing that you're like, man, if I could only have this, well, then, I, then I'd, be, I'd be content. If I could only do this or accomplish this, then, like, everything would work out. If, if I could only be noticed by him or by her, then things would be great. So in a few chapters... A man is going to come to Jesus who seems to have everything, so he's young. Do you know how much money is spent on trying to make people look young and feel young? Because youth is fleeting. You're not young for long, but he's young. In spite of being young, he's also very wealthy. He has enough money to do what it is he wants to do. He's young, he's rich, he's influential. There are people that he is able to give instructions to who will, who will do those things. So he has the ability to, to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. In spite of all that, he's a good guy. Like he's moral, he's religious, he's, he's not, he's not a, just squandering his life. He's all of these things. He's the kind of guy you would say this, he's got everything. And he comes to Jesus and Jesus says, I want you to follow me, but to follow me, you've got to leave all of that. And it says a man walked away from Jesus grieving because he had many possessions. He literally had gained the whole world, but he's losing his life. Now I want you to contrast him with a man named Paul who, when he was young, was also influential. He had people who obeyed him. He, he was highly intelligent and successful. He was incredibly moral. And yet, when it came time, he gave all of that up in order to follow Jesus. He says, not only did I give it up, but he said this, I count it as dung. I count it as refuse, as trash, as worthless in order to know Christ. What do you value? I really want you to think about your life, the way you spend your time, the things you buy, the things you look forward to, that you put them on your calendar and that's like you just can't wait for that thing. The thing that when you look back upon a year, you're like, oh, that made it a good year. 
Like, what is it you value? Is it stuff? There's a commercial right now that says, none of us will die thinking about the stuff we bought. We'll die thinking about the places we've traveled. Is that it? The places you've traveled? Like, what is it you value? Is it stability? Maybe it's not those experiences, but it's just stability, a sense of security. Let me ask you, is Jesus worth sacrificing your will, your plans, your right, at least in your own mind, to guarantee your future? So Jesus here, he's laying out two distinct set of values, and here's where they hinge, following him. They hinge on following him. Like, in order to follow Jesus, then you have to be willing to give up all sort of the worldly, earthly metrics of success. The, the, you, you no longer, as a Christian, get to determine your value, your worth, or your success in the same way that people around you value it. Do you think this happens instantly? I mean, this type of value change? Do you think it happens instantly? Like the fingers are snapped, there's a cloud of smoke, and all of a sudden you walk out going like, I value everything differently. This takes time and growth. I, I guarantee you Peter's rebuking Jesus because his perception of what is successful does not include Jesus hanging on a cross. It includes Jesus wearing a crown. Learning to lose your life for Jesus, to deny your will in favor of his, is a lifelong process. The more our hearts are watered by his word, the deeper the values of Jesus sink into the soil of our hearts. Now, I just want to give one quick clarification. Because last week we looked at how Jesus made, stressed that the Christian life is not, following him is not about keeping a set of rules. That following him is about faith in his Ability, confidence, his ability to transform lives. So it's possible that you heard that and you said, Great, I can do whatever I want. It's fantastic. I don't have to keep these rules. But, but see, Jesus says, Yes, the Christian life is not about external conformity to a set of religious rituals and practices. It's not about that. It's about denying yourself, though. And taking up the cross and following him. It's not just about doing whatever you want. Those, both, those are two ways to not follow Jesus. One is to do whatever it is you want and feel like. To try to gain the world. To save your life. Another way is trying to keep all the rules. Listen, this new way of thinking. This new way of valuing the world. Like This, this was going to get easier. A little easier for the disciples. Jesus says in verses 38 in the first verse of chapter 1 that when he comes back one day to establish his kingdom in all its glory after the cross and resurrection, when they see Jesus powerfully displayed as the king, that these will start to make more sense. But but here's what we need to see, that this Christian growth is a lifelong process. Like there, there, there may be moments in your life where due th- often through difficulty that God 
Like there's these blooms where all of a sudden you see growth and you're like, it's fantastic. But that's not the normal way it happens. Much of Christian growth happens not only over time, but it happens under the soil. Like roots are going deep. You don't see the roots. You know the roots you see? The ones that crack your sidewalk? Those are the roots that stay up near the surface. The roots that go deep, you don't see them. And that's much of the Christian life. Just because it's slow doesn't mean it won't happen. Now quickly, I want you to see the cure for immaturity. So when Jesus questions the disciples' maturity, he, he used a couple important metaphors. In verse 18 he says, Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? So he says, in your spiritual immaturity, are you blind and deaf? Yes, you are. So, what hope is there for someone who is deaf? Look at chapter 7, verse 31. Again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So he took him away from the crowd in private. After putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak clearly. What hope is there for someone who's blind? Look at verse 22 of chapter 8. He came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And so with great tenderness, Jesus reaches out and he touches these unclean men and heals them. But what's unique about these miracles is that they seem to happen more slowly than the other times Jesus heals people. Did you notice that? He takes his time. He gently touches them. Why? Because Jesus always heals, but he doesn't always heal quickly. He will open the eyes of the disciples. He will give them ears to hear, but he will not do it in one moment. He will do it over time, and they will have to patiently trust him. So when Jesus opens this blind man's eyes... The blind man says he sees, but not clearly, just dimly. And so Jesus touches him again, and then everything becomes clear. So when Jesus here asks his disciples about their sight, about their hearing, it's clear they don't yet see clearly. But, but I want you to see one final question Jesus asks them. And it is a question that's it's sort of a, a slight rebuke, but it's really a wonderful picture of grace. Look at verse 21. He asked them, Don't you understand yet? Don't you understand yet? Not yet. But the inclusion of the yet is a promise that they will. Don't you understand yet? Not yet. But one day, soon, the days, the, the eyes and the ears will be completely clear. So brothers and sisters, it is the touch of Jesus which gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. We cannot manufacture maturity on our own. The only thing, listen, this is is, is where it comes down to. Here's what you can do. You're frustrated with your immaturity? Good. 
Here's what you can do. Get closer to Jesus. Like the deaf man, like the blind man, come close enough for Jesus to touch you. Like the disciples, follow Jesus. Like That's the command. He says, come with me. Be with me. When we first started the study of Mark, I said one of the goals was for us to see Jesus with fresh eyes. And seeing Jesus with fresh eyes is both a path to maturity and it's a sign of maturity. Because the closer we get to him, the more we pursue him by listening to him and speaking to him in prayer and seeing him as we gather with his people and his love is displayed through their acts of service and kindness and welcome to us, the more we see Jesus... In all these ways, the more our eyes are open and our ears can hear. If you are frustrated with your sin and struggles and lack of spiritual growth, you need to understand that maturity is a product of time with Jesus. Like that's what it's teaching us. You, you want to be mature? You want to see? You want to understand? You want to hear? Be with Jesus. That's it. No other solution. No second way. Like you can't put spiritual maturity in a microwave, press a few buttons, and it comes out fully cooked. Like it, there is no other way but time with Jesus. So the way to pursue maturity is to pursue Jesus. Because at the heart of all Christian hope is that it's not in ourselves. It's in him. So as we close, I want you to turn back with me to Isaiah 35. So Isaiah, their Old Testament book. So the chapters leading up to Isaiah 35 are chapters of judgment because of sin, both on the Jewish people and the Gentile nations. And this judgment is portrayed in those chapters as, as sort of a time of drought, as fruitful lands being turned into deserts, dry and parched. But in chapter 35, the story turns. It's a story there of hope when the messianic king comes. Because when he comes, the curse will be rolled back and all that was lost by sin will be restored. So look at verse 1 of Isaiah 35. It says, The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildflower. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy and singing. So things are turning around. Things are being restored. But what else happens when the Messiah shows up to renew God's world and and rescue God's people? Look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. So these miracles we've just read, they're proof that Jesus is the Messiah, but they're also... The first beams of sunlight rolling over a renewed world. One author wrote that healing can never be simply a matter of correcting a few faults in the machine called the human body. It always was and is a sign of God's love breaking into the painful and death-laden present world. It was and is a pointer to the great healing that will occur when the secret is out, when Jesus is finally revealed to the whole world and our present stammering praise is turned into a full-hearted song. For Christians discouraged by sin and disheartened by spiritual failure, your hope is not in your ability to fix yourself. 
but in Jesus' victory over the sin which so easily ensnares you. For he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. Your tears of shame and your cries of frustration will one day turn to shouts of joy. I want you to listen to how Isaiah 35 ends because what begins with Jesus' healing hands ends like this. Verse 8, a road will be there and a way. It will be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for the one who walks the path. Fools will not wander on it. There will be no lion there. No vicious beast will go up on it. They will not be found there. But the redeemed will walk on it. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. It may not feel like it today, but the way of Jesus will lead to a feast in Zion. I love this. He says, at some point on your journey, there will be two companions that they feel like they've been walking with you the whole time. They're uninvited, but they're there. One's sorrow and one is sighing. And every step on the way, they have walked with you. And it says, at one point, because of Jesus, they're going to turn off. They're going to get off on an exit. And you'll never see them again. And you'll hear footsteps behind you. And you know the footsteps will be? Joy and gladness. And they will walk up and they will join you on either side and they will walk with you forever. Christian growth is not instant, but it is inevitable. Everyone who follows Jesus in faith will feast with him in the future. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray you help us to believe it. That we will not, like you warned the disciples, we will not experience the leaven of the Pharisees, this unbelief, which is so easy for us. I pray that you'll help us, keep us from unbelief, help us to trust you and recognize, recognize that in spite of our weakness, in spite of our failure, in spite of our wimpy faith, that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So may we with joy pursue you today. May we listen to your voice. May we be willing to give up all things in order to know you. But help us, help us to believe that it's worth it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.